Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without going through Wounded Warrior Project, I don't think I would be this way today. Start your mental health journey today with our no-cost programs for post-9-11 veterans at woundedwarriorproject.org slash heal. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome into another episode of the Get Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and obviously a very, very fun show for you guys today. South Carolina pulling off the improbable, certainly not the impossible, but definitely the improbable, a 24 and a half point opening underdog against Georgia. I don't know where the line ended up. I saw it bouncing around a whole bunch of different places over the course of the weekend and people saying Carolina upsets Georgia as a 21 point favorite or a 20 point favorite. I was like, no, no, no. There's no way the line dropped that much in 24 hours. The last I saw on Friday, it was like 23 and a half in some places and 24 in others. So it's a 23 or a 24 point upset. Regardless, uh, the biggest upset that I could find in South Carolina history. And I can't wait to talk about this, talk about where Carolina was able to succeed, where I think I and a lot of other people did not think that they would. And I'm very curious to talk to Will Helms, his uh, regular Monday visit, to see what exactly an upset of this magnitude looks like in terms of the advanced metrics. And then, of course, go through some of the best of social media from this weekend. But first, before we get into that, I want to remind you guys to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. It's a great time to do it. South Carolina has opened up as a seven or seven and a half point underdog against Florida at home. That's a noon game, um, but that's a lot. I think that I think if that game had been played last week, Carolina would have been like a 13-point underdog. So getting a lot of respect, obviously, after the upset against Georgia. So great time to subscribe to the podcast and uh, also to be a subscriber to Gamecock Central if you're listening to this for free because we give this out for free because we're awesome. And uh, you guys aren't a subscriber to Gamecock Central and you want to be, you can use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD to get a month of insider access for free as Carolina football might be turning things around and as basketball season is getting started in i think like 25 days november 6th if i remember correctly so great time to be a subscriber to gamecock central and all the gamecock central podcasts again go ahead and rate review subscribe to those share them with your friends if you like it and you want to hear a lot more of it that's a great way to support the podcast all right before we get to will last week i said that carolina was not going to win this georgia game i was not alone in feeling that way that was a very i think normal and reasonable thing to pick but there are a couple of things that happened over the course of this game that you can never really predict And part of what I did last week, or at least on my Friday podcast, was to say, okay, if Carolina does these things, if all of these things go Carolina's way, they can certainly pull off the upset. Because that's the beauty of sports. I mean, it is a random thing. And I know it's kind of a cliche at this point that that's why you go out there and play the game. But, you know, that's absolutely why you go out there and play the game. But when you're trying to describe the likelihood of an outcome, you're never taking into consideration something like, say, being plus four and turnover margin, especially for a team that the last two years has been negative. Like, so they're what they were four, five games into this season plus 13 games last year. So in the last 18 games, they were negative in turnover margin by, by like minus four or minus five. They were significantly minus in turnover margin. So there was no reason to believe that this team was going to come and they were either going to turn Georgia over a lot or play turnover free football themselves. 
But that's exactly what happened, and I think that's the best place to start because that's the story of the game. Obviously, SEC Defensive Player of the Week, and I think National Defensive Player of the Week, or at least we'll be angling for it. I don't know if they've actually released that yet because I don't, by and large, keep up with those kinds of awards. But Israel Mukwamu, 11 tackles, 7 of them solo tackles, 3 interceptions, 1 touchdown, a near unprecedented, and for South Carolina, it is an unprecedented stat line for a defensive player. An absolutely spectacular performance. Obviously, the first interception and the the, uh, the pick six was just a phenomenal display of athleticism. Great recognition, great break on the ball. He uses every single bit of his six foot four inch frame and long arms to get the football. Shows great hands to actually catch it too, and then takes it to the house. And then the other interceptions were just, again, just wonderful displays of a guy's hands that are really good, a, a lot of ath- athleticism, both of them kind of going down to his side. I think both of them going down to his left side, manages to hang on to the football, secure the catch without it touching the ground, although there was a little bit of discussion about that, I guess, his second interception, but the first of the uh, two where he was kind of going down to his left there. And I think the important thing about the turnovers, obviously the, the timeliness of them was fantastic. South Carolina tied 10-10. to Georgia was looking to go down and take a lead before the half, before South Carolina would get the ball back to start the second half, get the crowd back into it, and obviously the timing of that was phenomenal for Israel to, to get that and take it to the house when he did. And then the rest of them, the other three, all happened in the fourth quarter or in overtime, and they were all when Georgia was in plus territory. And, and, and that can't be overstated. So Georgia outgained South Carolina by... 200 and something yards. They possessed the ball for longer. They were better in, in like every measurable statistic. I mean, they ran 95 plays compared to just 68 for South Carolina. But the difference was they looked kind of like Carolina has looked in a lot of games this year where they have an inability to punch the ball in when they get it on the other side of the field, when they get it into the red zone. And you give Carolina credit for, for capitalizing on them. Obviously, I mentioned, you know, Mukwamu making a great play on the ball. Uh, his second interception was another, it was a bad pass, but it was a good play on the ball. Great to go down to his left and, and intercept that. But the other two were totally unforced errors by Georgia. You give Carolina credit, again, for capitalizing, for actually turning Georgia over. The Simmons interception in overtime, which ultimately ended up being moot because Parker White missed the field goal, but set Carolina up with their like second real chance to win that game the ball just goes right through Simmons' hand, and he probably catches that 10 times out of 10, but you give Mukwamu credit for being right there and, again, for having good hands and for being able to snag it. And then the other one, the first play of the fourth quarter, George is on the 30-yard line, the plus 30-yard line. They're going in, getting ready to tie this thing up, and all of a sudden they just fumble the snap. And it's like, all that kind of stuff doesn't happen, although Carolina fans saw that happen just earlier this year against Alabama. So it does happen, but when all of those things are happening in one game, uh, it's just, again, these things you, you can't really predict that that would happen, and you give Carolina credit for both forcing Georgia's hand in a couple of those instances and also capitalizing whenever it was just sort of a mistake that in the past, again, Carolina wouldn't necessarily have been able to capitalize on. You know, Alabama made some mistakes, Missouri made some mistakes, but Carolina wasn't really able to make them pay like they were against Georgia. Which brings me to my next point. Carolina seemed to display, and I give the coaching staff a lot of credit for this, a killer instinct that has been lacking, I mean, really since Will Muschamp got here. When this team has succeeded, it has been either in in kind of, I don't want to say dominant fashion, but it's been games that were ultimately comfortable for them. And then the losses have either been really lopsided kinds of losses or heartbreaking losses because this team seemed to, this team seemed to lack mental fortitude at times. And, and again, I think the consistency and I think the edge, I think a lot of that comes down from the coaching staff because as much as Everyone that's watched this team has seen the improvement of talent, the development of what Will Muschamp and others call quality depth, and couldn't quite figure out 
why the pieces weren't fitting together and why Carolina was still having these performances like Missouri or North Carolina where they absolutely lay an egg. That was the kind of stuff that I put on the coaching staff. But today was the exact opposite. They came out with a great game plan. The players executed it well. The players also seemed to buy into it. I mean, everything that Carolina was doing, those guys were going 110%. Nobody looked lost. Everybody seemed on the same page. And the energy was just it was just there in a way that it, even in the Alabama game, early in that game when it was close, it didn't it didn't really feel like the Carolina players felt like they were going to win that game. It felt like they were playing as underdogs. On Saturday, Carolina, the Carolina players looked like they believed every bit of, we belong on the same field with Georgia. We are as good or better than this team. And they established that. They won both lines of scrimmage consistently throughout the game. And it started with the defensive line. Obviously I mentioned Javon Kinlaw in that one individual play. He got sec defensive lineman of the week honors, despite only having four tackles, which is a credit to just what kind of a disruptive force he was for people that know and understand and appreciate that part of the game. Rick Sandage had an excellent game. Aaron Sterling had a, you know, continues to have a great game and, and blows me away at how effective he is, at, you know, rushing inside and outside as a guy that's as small as he is. I think he's listed at 245 or 250 and just continues to be, fantastically productive dj one another guy who didn't you know necessarily explode on the stat sheet but i think really seemed to affect the game i, I think it was javon kenlaw's sack it was you know you give him credit for forcing the middle part of the pocket but the only reason jake Fromm had to step up into the pocket was because dj one was kind of regularly beating his guy off the edge whether he was lined up on the right or the left he was winning that matchup and forcing Jake Fromm to step up into Kobe Smith or Rick Sandage or Zach Pickens or anybody else. The defensive line really set the tone for that game. And the secondary was great, too. That was probably the best game the secondary has played. Uh, as I mentioned, Jamie Robinson has had a great year. I think he had another spectacular grade, according to Pro Football Focus. Obviously, Israel Mukwamu's numbers are going to be through the roof. I'll be curious to see how J.C. Horn graded out in this game, just because initially watching the game live, I didn't feel like he had a great game. And then after a rewatch, it seemed like he was a little bit better, was the victim of a couple of, well, at least one that I can remember really spectacular catch. Uh, did miss at least one tackle in space, so I don't know exactly what his grade will look like. But when I talked about Carolina having an identity last week, and this performance, win or loss, having more to do with identity than result, that's exactly what I was talking about. For Will Muschamp, who's still putting his fingerprints on this program, it, it was always going to start with defense. It was always going to start up front with a defensive line, and it was always going to be his position group, the secondary, and particularly the safeties, which I, you know, I don't know how they will grade out as opposed to the corners and uh, as opposed to the nickel. But everybody in the secondary played really well. JT Ebay won, made one of the biggest plays of the game that people haven't really talked about. When Georgia was driving to try to set up a long field goal. I guess they ended up setting up a Hail Mary instead of a long field goal. But when that happened... They had a second and five at like the, I want to say the 40 right around there. And they had somebody running. It was either a corner route or like a deep out route. JT Bay was on it. He ends up breaking up the pass. It would have been a first down. It would have put it within comfortable chip shot range for Rodrigo Blankenship. And I guess he goes on to miss a 42-yarder later in the game. So there's no guarantee that he would have made that. But it's a much more makeable field goal. Georgia certainly would have attempted the field goal rather than attempting the Hail Mary that ended up in an incomplete pass that was maybe initially ruled a fumble but that was a huge huge play um, for ebay so just all of those guys making the plays that's exactly what you wanted to see from this team and, and what i was talking about in terms of establishing identity south carolina ran 68 plays on offense georgia ran 95 georgia 
had almost 200 more yards in South Carolina. They were more efficient on third down. They dominated in pretty much every phase of the game, except for one, I already mentioned turnovers, but two, they dominated playing the game that Carolina wanted them to play. And I think that's really important. If Georgia had dominated, if they had 95, if you just told me that Georgia was going to have 200 yards more than Carolina, be more efficient on third down, have the ball in South Carolina territory more than Carolina, and even tell me that they were going to lose the turnover margin, but not tell me by how much, and that South Carolina's defense would would be on the field for 95 plays while the offense only ran 68, I would have told you that South Carolina still, like I said, if you tell me that they lost, if they lost the turnover margin, did Georgia, but didn't tell me by how much, I would say they lost by one or two. They still won the game by. 14, 17, 20. But the important distinction is what those 95 plays that Georgia was on the field for looked like. They had 51, it was 52 team pass attempts, 51 pass attempts from Fromm. And if you told me in that same conversation, if you finish that whole diatribe off by saying, oh yeah, and Jake Fromm's going to throw the ball 51 times, I would think that Carolina either won or was absolutely right in there because there is no part of Georgia's game plan that had Jake Fromm throwing the ball more than 50 times. He has not thrown the ball or had not before Saturday thrown the ball more than 30 times in a single game. He had more he had 22 more pass attempts than his season high this year and that is a direct result of South Carolina forcing Georgia to get out of its comfort zone to play a game that it was not prepared or equipped clearly to play. Uh, Jake Fromm is, I still think, a really good quarterback and just had a bad day. I think he will be fine. He'll still finish the season fantastic statistically. He'll probably end up being a decent NFL quarterback. He's still really good, but he was not prepared to do what he was asked to do on Saturday. That's never been part of the game plan, and you see what happens when you make a guy uncomfortable by asking him to do way more than he is prepared to do. Not capable, but prepared to do. There were mispasses. There were miscommunications. More opportunities for him to make mistakes. He's a very efficient quarterback, but it's also easier to be efficient in lower volume than in higher volume. That's just that's just how math works. And so the last point that I wanted to make, and this is, I mean, the, these are all related, but especially related to two, because as much as the losses have felt very much on the coaching staff this year, I think this win is very much a, a credit to the coaching staff. And yes, obviously the players get credit for it. The players were awesome. They were great. They executed. They did all that stuff. I, don't, I feel like I don't even need to say that, but someone's going to get mad if I don't say that. So there you go. I said it. This coaching staff, I think, has been guilty at times of, I don't want to say being too flexible, because obviously a part of coaching is being willing and able to make adjustments, but South Carolina seems to get, seems to too easily get away from what it wants to do and what its strengths are in an attempt to do something that kind of fits the game plan. And again, I understand it. When you're overmatched, you kind of need to make some of those exceptions. But this is a game that the coaching staff felt like they didn't need to do that, and you give them credit for being able to identify that, and then not only for being willing to implement a game plan where they say, okay, you know, we're going to play these guys straight up. We have these things that we think we can do. Here are some matchups where we feel like we can take advantage. We feel like we can sell it to stop the run. The defensive line is, you know, playing well enough. We feel like they can hold the offensive line in check. We're going to move to a little more 4-3. We're going to get Sherrod Green on the field because he's a guy that can make a difference, and he's a guy that I think also played very, very well on Saturday. And not only did they bring in that game plan, but it was working, and they stuck with it. And by the end of the game, I mean, this sounds like maybe an oversimplification, and maybe the turnovers were more of a factor, but my takeaway from that game on Saturday, South Carolina won 20-17, to not primarily because they were plus four in turnover margin, although that was a big part of it. They won because they played the game that they wanted to play. They went into Athens and made Georgia play 
South Carolina football. South Carolina made Jake Fromm throw it 51 times. South Carolina held DeAndre Swift to two yards per carry fewer than his season average, and his stats were fine. I mean, they were good. 23 carries, I think, for 113 yards, something like that. But it wasn't impactful yardage. It wasn't a 20-yard run and then a 35-yard run and then a 5-yard run and then a 5-yard run to get to 5 yards of carry. It was an 8-yard run here and then a 3-yard run and a 3-yard run and stuffed at the line. And then, you know, here's 10. But nothing got out of control. South Carolina held Georgia's chunk yardage plays in check, starting with the running game. And again, to go back to point one and to bring this all full circle, started with the or excuse me, with the defensive line of South Carolina just playing one of the best games I've seen that unit play in in year. Like I don't think I've seen a South Carolina defensive line play that well since probably some game in 2012 that I can't think about. They were just absolutely suffocating, and they asserted their will in a way that I just have not seen a South Carolina team do in a while. And that, as much as the win, was the most encouraging part of watching that upset unfold on Saturday. And why? Starting with Florida this weekend, all of a sudden, Carolina fans aren't looking at this Georgia game as, oh, this is a fluke. And I I think that speaks to uh, you know what I'm talking about, because there's no Carolina fan that thinks Carolina is going to be plus four in turnovers every game for the rest of the season. But whether they know it consciously or not, fans understand that what happened on Saturday was more than the fluke of some weird turnovers, a botched snap, a drop pass by Simmons, those things that aren't exactly replicable and you can't count on every game. It was about South Carolina saying this is the kind of this is a brand of football that we are going to play and doing it against a team that is on paper more talented than Carolina. And they were still able to do it. And that gives you encouragement for Florida, for Ad Texas AM. And, I mean, Clemson's just kind of slept walk through the season. Not to say that they're not better than Carolina, but again, Georgia was better than Carolina. It's a cliche to say, who wants it more? <laughs> but uh, Saturday was a classic, it was a classic nobody believes in us game, and it was a classic who wants it more. And now I'm curious to see what who wants it more looks like when you dig into the advanced metrics. So here comes Wilhelms with all the juicy numbers from Saturday's upset. All right, on the phone with me now, Will Helms for his regular Monday segment after South Carolina pulls off the biggest upset in the history of its entire 127, I think, years of playing football, at least as far as I could find in terms of betting lines. And obviously it was a spectacular performance for a lot of reasons, and including some things that I think don't exactly show up on paper. You know, things like Carolina forcing Georgia to play the game that Carolina wanted it to play. Uh, but Will's here with me now to, to tell me just exactly how the numbers, I guess, look after an historic upset like this. Uh, so first of all, Will, how about that game? Yeah, that was uh, not what I expected. But, um, <laughs> that was a fun game to be at, honestly. Oh, you were there? Yeah. I was, oh. uh, on, on the field at EM2, which was fun. Oh, my gosh. Were you standing under the the goalpost that, that Georgia was kicking towards or the other one? I was behind. Um, so I was right in front of the South Carolina student section, basically, um, other side of the field. So I was able to get some good video of uh, the sidelines and fans. And it was, uh, yeah, it was something I don't think I've ever experienced before. Yeah, well, most people will not get the opportunity to experience that. South Carolina had had been 
a an underdog by that much only six times since 1998, which is as far back as I could find. And they had won none of those games. They had covered in five of the six. Uh, but that's really cool. I, I didn't even know you were there. So you can now not only speak to what the numbers look like, which we're going to get to in just a minute, but as I mentioned, there are some things, you know, I, I think just like by nature, when you're talking about an upset of this magnitude, that, that can't and don't show up on paper. But you were there on the field, so you can give me an idea, a glimpse into what was going on in terms of the mojo that South Carolina had on Saturday. What did you see down there at field level? Um, so it's actually interesting that you said um, – said that this week is one of the weeks that I don't necessarily agree with all of the PFF numbers. Um, and there's some things that the math can't account for um, or doesn't account for that um, were impacting the game. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, I guess, but um, South Carolina really did force Georgia to play their game. And they, you know, they came out and said they were going to stop the run and then force Jake, uh, Dick, Jake from to throw under pressure. And um, they did that more than any other team has forced Georgia to do that uh, really in the past two, three years. Um, So game plan was excellent, and they executed it to perfection. Teams have not really made Jake Fromm throw much at all recently. He hasn't attempted more or had not attempted more than 30 passes in a game this season, and when they have forced him to pass, it's not been really under pressure. He was only sacked one time, but South Carolina was able to make him throw 51 times, as you mentioned, sack him three times, intercept him three times. The eye test across the board says the defense was just, I mean, that's, that's probably on the short list, if not at the very top of best defensive performances for the entire unit in, in this decade. Um, early returns, obviously, Israel Mukwamu probably was headlining uh, the way. Was there anyone on defense that didn't grade out extremely well? So the grading actually was not um, as high as you would think um, for a lot of the players. And I'll tell you the main um, issue that kind of messed up the numbers a little bit was that South Carolina's defense played 95 snaps. Um, so in their algorithm, it's on a per snap basis. And so if the defense, if, you know, you have some guys that played really well, you have uh, three guys that had double digit tackles. Um, and a lot of those were, you know, pretty close to the line of scrimmage. But when you have 95 plays, it can um, negatively impact the numbers just from a um, math standpoint. Um, one example of that is Javon Kinlaw actually had his lowest PFF grade of the season. Um, and that was in that regard, the reason for that would be that he played 82 snaps, which is, first of all, just absolutely ridiculous for a um, any defensive, really any defensive non-secondary player, but especially defensive tackle, um, to play that many. As far as I can see, that's the most uh, snaps played by any defensive tackle all season. Wow. Um, and so he had six quarterback pressures, um, which is impressive, you know, by itself. But the fact that it comes in so many snaps, he actually doesn't get a huge boost for that because he had so many opportunities. But at the same time, the numbers can't factor in for fatigue, can't factor in for other factors, um, like the fact that they started scheming away from him later in the game because throughout as much as they could um, because he was being dominant up front. And so his pass rush grade ended up being ridiculously high and his rush defense grade didn't grade out that well. And I believe that, you know, the, not just South Carolina's coaches, but the scorers of PFF, would be totally fine with having Javon Kinlaw have six pressures and and slightly okay, okay um, run defense grade. So it's you know a thing where the numbers and the math might not grade out super positively, but the impact was there, and anybody who watched it can kind of see that. Yeah, no question about it. He's the SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week for a reason. And one of the things, that, like you mentioned, that you can't really quantify, and I think we maybe even talked about this last week, the impact that a guy – 
like Javon, having the season that he's having, has on the other players around him. I think I test, again, it looked like Rick Sandage had an awesome day out there. It looked like Kobe Smith played really well. It looked like Zach Pickens was effective when he was playing. Did all those guys see, I guess, a commensurate boost in their pro football-focused numbers relative to the little bit of a dip that we saw from Javon in terms of the PFF numbers? So overall, the pass rushing grades, again, with so many passes and Georgia eventually going to a lot of quick passes, um, the PFF grades don't really show the full impact of what happened. But then again, that's where you, whenever you watch a game like Saturday, you have to dig in past the grades. And then you see that Georgia's offensive line all season had allowed 21 pressures and they allowed 16 to South Carolina. Um, Georgia's defensive tackles on the season have allowed 12 total pressures and seven of those have come against South Carolina. So over half of the pressures against the um, exterior linemen, I guess your, your two tackles where most of your pressure is going to come from, um, South Carolina has over... 50%, over 60% of the season's pressures on Georgia's tackles. And so you see that all game, they were just having trouble containing South Carolina. You have uh, Javon Kimball with six total pressures, uh, uh, DJ Wanham with four total pressures, um, Enigbare and Sterling had two each. You have Kobe Smith with one. You have um, Danny Fennell with one. He got in there. Um, you have Rick Sanders playing really, really well against the run. And so you have um, – you see the rotation of players when they did get to rotate, when uh, they didn't, you know, when they tried to take Javon Kimmel out and he said that he wouldn't go out. But, you know, the few plays that he and Kobe Smith didn't play, you see the rotation players coming in and still playing well at that defensive tackle position and the defensive end position. Yeah, I guess what Coach Muschamp always refers to is quality depth, not only – you know, something that you see in practice pushing the guys ahead of them, but also when you have to rotate those top guys out, having a less precipitous drop-off uh, to sort of, the, you know, that quote-unquote backup. But I guess when you're talking about the defensive line, you're talking about Carolina going with eight guys that can, you know, realistically, apparently, you know, play at a, at a, a level, a high enough level that they can win a road SEC game against the number three team in the country. Uh, part of the reason that Carolina did have to face so many snaps and so many pass attempts, which may have diluted the pass rushing numbers, is that Georgia had one of its least effective rushing days of the season. In terms of pure output, it was second lowest, um, I guess, ahead of just that Notre Dame game. They rushed for, I think, like 15 more yards maybe than Notre Dame, but the rush yards per carry uh, was, I believe, lower than that Notre Dame game. So who graded out the highest in terms of run defense for Carolina? So your highest run defense grade let me pull up the numbers right in front of me, um, belonged to Kobe Smith, who last year had a you know quietly solid year against the run. And then you have Rick Sandich, um, Isra Mukwamu, who that's probably the most underrated part of his um, game. He's actually one of the highest-graded uh, secondary players in the country against the run. Um, R.J. Roderick playing well, so you have you know two secondary guys coming down. And then um, D.J. Wanham all scored in the well-above-average range against the rush. Did anybody have a, a poor rush defense grade? Yeah, there were actually a couple. Um, so Jamie Robinson did not, you know, play super well against uh, against the run, but then at the same time he had no missed tackles. Um, so you know, you're not really expecting your slot corner to really come up and do a lot against the run. Um, Aaron Sterling didn't have a great day against the run, but his tackling grade was um, was good, and he had again those two pressures, um, including a quarterback hit on Jake Fromm. So. Um, you know, most of the guys that you see with a negative, quote-unquote, uh, rush grades were still contributing in ways that were you know, really helpful to the team. 
I thought Aaron Sterling had a really interesting game. Carolina obviously spent a, a good bit of time, especially once it was clear that Georgia was, you know, going to be dropping back and passing at the majority of the time with, uh, I guess, what some people have called the rabbit package, where you have DJ Wanham and um, JJ Nagbari at the end. You have Javon Kinlaw at one tackle, and then putting a guy that's already undersized at a defensive end inside of the three technique, and Sterling was still able to be effective and generate pass rush from the inside. And I just, I have to imagine that that guy. He must be pound for pound one of the strongest guys on the team if he can go up against not just offensive guards but massive and good offensive guards that Georgia has, basically rushing as a, as a defensive end on the interior. Yeah, he played um, – actually, I've got the numbers right here if I can do some quick math. He played uh, 21 snaps um, inside the tackle, um, which, again, as you said, he's listed as, what, 6'1", 250 or something like that. So to um, have some quality um, snaps against – you know, interior offensive lineman is just another thing. Um, you know, some of the versatility that South Carolina's defense likes to bring in packages, and it allows them really to, to do different things with their defense that they wouldn't be able to do with guys that can't play multiple positions. You already mentioned uh, the pressure numbers, and obviously the sack numbers for Carolina were tremendous. Part of that is, you know, for stretches in the game there, Fromm didn't really have anywhere to go with the ball down the field. The secondary, you know, gave up a decent amount of yards, but as you mentioned, when you play 95 snaps, the raw totals are going to be pretty big, but I think Fromm was just a tick under 5.8 yards per attempt. Obviously, Israel Mukwamu had a good game. Going back and watching it again this morning, Horn had a couple guys locked down, and Jamie Robinson seemed to have another really good game. Uh, did the secondary numbers reflect what seemed to be a good performance based on the eye test? Yeah, so um, the numbers actually are a little bit better than what well, – I guess the, the grades are a little bit better than what the numbers are, and a lot of that has to do with Georgia's receivers actually had a pretty good game. Um, you have a, a drop in overtime that ends to – you know, leads to a – Mukwamu's third interception, but you have guys like George Pickens making, um, he actually had two created catches, which means they should not have been receptions by any stretch of the imagination. And you have receivers that are bailing their quarterback out. Um, so, you know, uh, Georgia's wide receivers, I think, if I was bringing the numbers up, um, basically, without a doubt, were there. Yeah, they have, um, you have Cager with an 84.1 offensive grade, which is the best for either team. Um, you have George Pickens with a 71 offensive grade. Um, you have a couple of uh, Georgia's running backs who actually had pretty good grade, um, despite everything, especially in the passing game. Um, and so it's a lot of those grades were, you know, yards that Prom had were really good coverage that um, guys made really good plays on and um, kind of spoiled really good coverage. But at the same time, you have um, Jakey Ebay, who's had a very quietly good two weeks probably by PFF grade, um, the best two weeks of anybody on South Carolina's team um, between this game and the Kentucky game, um, had a 73 or 76.3 coverage grade, which is bordering the elite range. Um, you have Mukwamu obviously had a very good coverage grade, um, but Robinson, uh, Roderick, uh, Sherrod Green, TJ Brunson all had above average um, coverage grade. And then uh, J.C. Horn had about an average coverage grade. He had um, – Again, a couple of pretty good catches against him, um, but still only allowed um, a lot about nine yards of um, an attempt. So worse than the rest of the guys on the team, but still at the same time, you've got, you know, Jamie Robinson allowing two receptions on uh, seven targets. I think it tweeted out today it was one on six. Well, they, they changed it back. Um, so two receptions on seven targets for 22 yards, um, which is, you know, just ridiculously good and actually hurts his season numbers. Um, you have R.J. Roderick um, allowing one reception for six yards on three targets. 
Um, JTE, they won reception for um, six yards on four targets. Um, you know, obviously, Ikwamu, um he allowed five receptions on eight targets, so he had, you know, three picks on those. I think one of them probably wasn't a uh, – wasn't a target to him and with it bouncing off the receiver's hands, but you just see a lot of guys that are, um, you know, stepping up and playing really well. I and mean, it really shows that on defense, when you don't have a weak link, you don't have a guy that you can go after the entire defense benefits. This is something I guess I'm kind of curious about the process. You mentioned five receptions on eight targets for Mukwame, but obviously three interceptions and a touchdown. He was the player of the game. That's an unprecedented defensive performance for a South Carolina defensive back. But did the numbers, did the interceptions cause his number to balloon? Or in the eyes of pro football focus, is it more about he still gave up five catches on just eight attempts, which is, you know, obviously over 50% of his targets result in catches? So with their, um, I guess with their numbers, it partially it goes in numbers and then partially it's grading each play. And so your, you know, the pick six would probably be they grade everything from a negative two to a positive two. And then they, you know, kind of throw that into an algorithm based on position and, and snaps played and um, things like that to get the final number. Um, but you, you have things like the, the pick six would probably, that was an excellent play, an excellent read on the ball. And yes, it was helped by Javon Kimball's pressure. Um, but he would probably score, they don't release those numbers, but he'd probably score in the 1.5 range for the pick six, um, which would really bring his numbers up. And then it's just a matter of, you know, how much did the receptions that he gave up um, bring his numbers down. But at the same time, even if he didn't have the interceptions, you have eight targets for 55 yards and um, only three first downs on those. So, you know, if you're giving up a, a first down, three out of every eight targets, that's not bad to begin with. Um, and then you do have the three picks, which, of course, you know, are huge. Now, he probably didn't get graded, you know, super positively for his third interception. That was more of a drop by a receiver and him happening to be in the right place at the right time. But his, um, his first two were excellent plays on the ball. And so those would probably um, increase his grade a little bit. Um, and his coverage grade was really good. Was it the highest on the team? It wasn't. Uh, JT Ebase was actually okay. slightly higher. Wow. And, you know, eBay, I mentioned this on my local show today on 107.5 The Game. JT eBay made a play that has not been talked about and may have ended up being the most important single play of the game. I know it's never fair to, to isolate it like that, but I think it, Georgia had a second and five. It was when they were – they had just gotten into field goal range. They were right on the cusp. I think they were right at about the 40-yard line. And Jake Fromm threw – I guess it was just like a little out route or a comeback. I don't remember. It was something on the sideline, and JT eBay was able to break it up. Uh, it was then that Georgia had – uh, I guess the illegal motion or the illegal shift penalty, and that's what kind of put him out of field goal range and caused him to to throw a hail mary. But if he had completed that pass, they would they would have been out of bounds. The clock would have stopped. They would have been able to trot out the field goal unit for what would have been a much more manageable field goal for Rodrigo Blankenship. Um, and again, I haven't seen a lot of people talking about that. But but eBay he made that play. He came across. He tracked the receiver. I don't know if they were in man or in zone, but that was a, a huge play for him. So good to see him. Who's or good to yeah good to see for eBay who's been up and down and. I know fans have had mixed feelings about his play coming up big in big moments against Georgia. Yeah, and he, he's definitely been great the past two weeks. And, uh, you know, you can attribute that to a lot of things. I think part of it is just the cohesiveness of, of playing with a unit that um, really is just feeding off of each other. Um, the, the defensive backs have more confidence knowing that the defensive line is going to get pressure. The defensive line um, is more confident knowing that they've got um, pretty good coverage behind them. And then the defensive backs are working well together. I've seen – um, over the past two weeks, I've seen four different defensive backs make audibles in um, in coverage, including Jamie Robinson. 
um, as a freshman. And so those guys are just really clicking together and it, it's starting to come together for that unit, you know, kind of like we thought it might. Um, but, you know, the past two weeks have just been excellent for that unit in particular. Last thing I wanted to ask you about on the defensive side of the ball, I know Javon Kinlaw is our favorite player. We love talking about him, and he's worth talking about because he's one of the best defensive tackles in the country. But one of my sneaky favorite players on the South Carolina team this year has been Ernest Jones, who's who was, I think, good last year and then has just been next level this year, finished this game with 12, ta- uh, 12 tackles, three passes broken up for a linebacker, which is fantastic. How did he grade out this game? So he actually didn't grade out that well, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, he, he gave up a couple um, catches, I guess, on third down uh, for first downs that kind of negatively impacted his coverage grade. Um, but this game in particular, he's, I guess all season he's kind of been an enigma. He's had um, – I don't know if PFF knows what to do with him um, just because he's been um, – gives North Carolina graded, you know, in elite range um, – really well against Charleston Southern, had the highest grade on the team against um, Kentucky last week, had the highest coverage grade on the team, um, and then has some weird games against Missouri with like a poor coverage grade against Missouri. Um, a weird game against Georgia, he didn't grade out as well as I you know, kind of thought he would, um, despite grading out well in most of the, um, most of the categories that he would, you know, impact the game. I think part of it is um, PFF does not weight, um, weight things the same way that, say, a defense would. And so he, as a linebacker, um, actually gets some pretty heavy weight on how he does in pass rush. And he rushed the passer 10 times, didn't have any stats there. Um, but I would say that Will Muschamp would be happy with Ernest Jones if he gets 12 tackles, five of them resulting in negative or, I guess, um, unsuccessful plays for the offense. Um, and gives up only 50%, um, a cap rate of 50%. I think Will Muschamp would be very happy to have that and him not have any pressures um, versus maybe a, a different team that would rather their linebackers provide uh, put pressure on the quarterback. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and th- that is interesting, and again, sort of speaks to kind of the process of pro football focus and you know where there are valid criticisms in terms of not knowing exactly uh, what the scheme is, what the coaching staff is asking or expecting of a particular player, because you know, for my money, the only thing that I can remember in terms of what I would imagine would negatively impact his grade would be uh, the big pass that he gave up. But that was an instance where uh, Carolina was in zone coverage. Ernest Jones had dropped back, and then from just threw a, a perfect pass between Jones and I don't remember if it was Roderick or eBay, one of the safeties, and then whoever was on the receiving end of it. I think it was Pickens in this case made a great catch, and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, he was in coverage, and you know the defense was fine but it's just even better catch and even better throw. Uh, so not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, but that does surprise me. But uh, I guess regardless of, of those numbers, he continues to rack up the stats is on, t- on, uh, on pace for 100 tackles this year for Carolina. So he's just been he's been a revelation for me, someone that I've really enjoyed watching. On the offensive side of the ball, South Carolina you know, scored 20 points, which wasn't great. It was enough to win, so I guess that's all that matters. And obviously sort of a weird game, too, having a couple of different quarterbacks. I mean, basically one in each half. Ryan Holinsky seemed to... Operate the offense very smoothly. Had a beautiful deep ball to Brian Edwards. Finished 15 to 20, 116 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions. To carry on, Joiner, uh, not quite as good or as efficient in the past. Six of 12, 39 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. Seemed to miss a couple open receivers, uh, but you know didn't lose the game. He did just enough to keep Carolina in the game. Made a few plays with his legs. So we'll start with the quarterback positions. How did each of those guys grade out according to Pro Football Focus? So Ryan Holinsky uh, brought in the highest. PFF grade of his career, and actually the second highest in the SEC, just behind Joe Burrow, which if anybody watched that game, 
you know, there's no surprise there that Joe Burrow would be number one in that category. Um, but he had an 80.3 grade, which is actually the highest of any South Carolina player offense or defense. Um, and I, I thought he did a really great job of um, hitting open receivers and um, putting the ball right where he needed to. That uh, throw to Brian Edwards was probably the best throw of the season um, for any South Carolina quarterback. Um, and he threw a couple more with guys in his face, just, you know, either slant routes or deep ends or kind of the, the tough over-the-middle throws. And he was just putting them, you know, on, on target pretty much every play. Um, so I was very impressed with him and obviously PFF was as well. Um, Joyner did not grade out quite as well. Um, I think we have to kind of remember that he really was kind of limited. He did practice last week, but I was more impressed with the fact that Georgia is the fastest defense that South Carolina is going to play all season. I don't think it's particularly close. And Dickerian Joyner made a couple of those guys look silly. Um, he had ended up with 52 rush yards after contact. Um, had no negative plays in the rushing game. Um, only we had his number called one time um, on a designed run, but ended up scrambling a couple times, ended up with, I think, you know, 40 or 50 rushing yards. Um, and one thing I, I found interesting is that this season he has yet to run when he's not under pressure, um, which is something from a young quarterback that, you know, sometimes they default to their legs too quickly. But um, while he's not passing the ball very well against pressure, he is running the ball um, fairly well against pressure, and he's not running the ball when he doesn't have to, um, which I think for a redshirt freshman is a huge, um, you know, huge accomplishment to be able to say that. And again, when you're put in that position, as you mentioned, a guy that has been practicing a wide receiver and also was dealing with a hamstring injury, so it's not like he's just been repping as the number two quarterback ever since Ryan Helensky took over and he was – I mean, not that he wasn't ready to go, but it's not like he's been spending all of his time you know, planning on this necessarily being the case. So you give him a lot of credit for being able to come in and, and take over the offense again. It, it wasn't – I won't say it's seamless because clearly Carolina's offense was not as potent with Joyner in there as with Helensky, but he didn't make any mistakes, and that was sort of what he was put in position to do. Um, he, he made a couple passes. He made a nice uh, pass on a slant, I think, on Shai Smith on a third down to keep a drive alive for Carolina. He did enough to continue flipping the field and to put South Carolina's defense in a, in a good position where they weren't defending short fields, which I think was, was really important. And you mentioned, obviously, his contributions in the running game, uh, six carries, 28 yards there for Joyner. Uh, elsewhere in, in the uh, rushing stats for South Carolina, Rico Dowdle, uh, got the most carries by a wide margin, 21 carries for 79 yards. Tavian Feaster only seven for 27. But uh, based on just you know my uh, my watching the game, it seemed like Rico had probably as good a game as you know as he's had all year against a much tougher defense than he's faced all year. Yeah. So um, PFF does not take into consideration opponent. Um, I like that sometimes. I dislike that sometimes. And so Georgia came into this game ranked third by PFF in run defense. Um, so you look at the numbers and they're not great. And then you consider the, um, the opponent and you say, okay, yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty good. So he ends up, um, 21 rushes for 79 yards, only four first downs, but two, uh, 10 plus yard rushes, which is more than Georgia had, um, and five avoided tackles, which, um, South Carolina's defense as a whole only missed seven tackles. So he, you know, caused nearly as many missed tackles as, um, all of Georgia's offense combined. Um, so I thought that, you know, all things considered, he played really well. And, you know, South Carolina, um, you know, somebody I think put on the Gamecock Central boards last week, would South Carolina get to 100 rushing yards? And a lot of that has to do with uh, Joyner being able to, um, you know, add some rushing yards here and there. But um, South Carolina was able to get to 142 rushing yards, um, and 127 came after contact. So um, at least when your defense is playing that well, 
that is something that can really, um, you know, really help at least keep the game, uh, keep the game close to keep your defense in position to continue to help you. Carolina had seven different receivers, or I guess receivers slash tight end slash running backs, but seven different guys uh, with a reception led by Brian Edwards, six catches, 78 yards. The aforementioned touchdown, I imagine he had the highest grade of anyone that caught a pass for Carolina? Yeah, so he ended up with the highest grade. Um, he had a penalty, I think it was a false start, um, which kind of hurt his grade. Uh, penalties really negatively impact um, uh, grades, especially for receivers that don't get a ton of opportunities to um, – Possibly impact the grade or the grade, but if you look at the quarterback rating, um, I can't remember off the top of my head what a perfect quarterback rating is. It's like 158 point something, but he was at 158.3 when he was targeted. So um, six for six, uh, 78 yards and a touchdown. Um, he you know got hurt on the same play as Linsky, and I don't know if he had a target or a reception um, after that, but he definitely you know played well. You had um, Shy Smith. Had several catches, but not many yards at all. Uh, had a lot of swing passes, things like that. Only averaged three yards of reception, um, which is, you know, not great. But, again, a lot of those are screen passes and, um, you know, passes behind the line of scrimmage. And he, he ended up avoiding a tackle and uh, getting a first down on one of his catches. So he was able to do enough to keep South Carolina ahead of the chains on a couple plays. Um, then you have Nick Muse, who ended up playing well, did have a drop. Um, but was targeted four times with three first downs, which is you know always something you're looking for from a um, from a tight end. And then uh, Travis Dawkins ended up um, you know playing decently well. Probably um, had he not been interfered with, would have had the biggest play of the game uh, for the offense, I guess. Other than that, Brian Edwards touchdown um, on a throw from Dakarian Joyner, which from my vantage point I was on the field at that point, so I didn't have the greatest vantage point, but looked like a good throw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he put it, you know, pretty much where it needed to be. It looked like he would have made a catch had it had he not been interfered with. And he seems to have kind of emerged as South Carolina's third guy. There was some, you know, some talk it was going to be Josh Vance, some talk that it was going to be Ortrey Smith, uh, Xavier Leggett. You know, some buzz during camp, but it's kind of been Travis Dawkins the last couple of weeks. He uh, his only catch, I guess, was that comeback. But just seeing him on the field a lot, and, and he he does look the part as well. Uh, you also mentioned Nick Muse, someone that I've continued to enjoy watching. I know he's he's had four or five drops this year, and so I think a lot of Carolina fans will. Hold that against him, but once he gets his hand, once he gets uh, the ball in his hands, he seems to be as dynamic as any tight end that Carolina has. There was one pass that he caught on a third down, just short of the sticks, and was able to make a move and get up field. And um, you know, not that Carolina needs to game plan to get Nick Muse the ball, but that continues to be an interesting option. The more that he kind of grows into the offense, in terms of the offensive line, South Carolina was. Uh, you know, able to block well enough for them to run for 142. Obviously, a lot of that is uh, credit to Rico Dowdle and Tavian Feaster and um, to carry on Joyner. The other couple guys who got to carry Brian Edwards and, and Shai Smith, you know, they did a, a good job, I think, according to the rushing numbers. The offensive line probably brought, blocked the run pretty well, though. Um, the pass protections, though, were I'm curious because obviously Ryan Holinsky took a lot of hits, including one that led to him getting injured. Um, but the sack numbers... You know, it was a lot of pressures and a lot of hurries. I think a lot of hits, but not that many sacks. I don't remember offhand how many they had. Were the pass protection numbers generally favorable, or did it does it kind of reflect that Carolina's quarterbacks were under pressure? So I was hoping you'd ask about this because this was the most interesting thing to me. So if I can pull these numbers up, let me make sure I do that um, right quick. So Georgia was credited in this game with 17 pressures. South Carolina's offensive line allowed five. So what that means is that all of these um, 
plays were where Georgia would bring an extra defender because PFF does not dock an offense for giving up a pressure when it's just a guy that's unblockable. So South Carolina's um, offensive line in total allowed three pressures. Rico Dattle allowed two. Um, so three hurries, one by uh, Jalen Nichols, one by Javon Gwynn, one by Cedarius Hutcherson. Um, so the pass block grades were actually excellent. You had three grades in the elite range um, and three other grades in the good range, um, with the only one, uh, only two below average would be um, Javon Gwynn's and Rico Dowdles, who only stayed in the block three times and apparently gave up two pressures. So um, usually what that means is they brought him in in obvious blitz situations and he just, you know, could not stop the blitz, which, you know, happens when you have Georgia, which has a very good linebacking core, very good secondary um, bringing guys in. So, yeah, it did feel like um, Georgia had more pressure than they did, but a lot of that was because the defense was bringing an extra guy, which I think allowed Brian Holinsky to hit, find those one-on-one matchups on the outside um, and be able to hit them, um, you know, where where applicable. And I, I would say that had he not been hurt, had he not been, um, you know, what looked like a, a little bit uh, slowed from a couple hits early in the game, um, you could have seen him, I think, really go off in the second half just with, you know, how dialed in he was. That's fascinating. And also a huge credit to Helensky's performance because, I mean, when you look at Fromm, obviously throwing three interceptions, 28 of 51, it's a little bit of a different scenario because Fromm was playing from behind and obviously he played the entire game. We can't exactly tell what Helensky was going to do, but given that uh, that both quarterbacks were under pressure, were being hit, whether it was, you know, because of something schematic or because of uh, their offensive line breaking down in protection, it seemed like Helensky was, was the sharper and more efficient of – the two quarterbacks when one is considered to be the most efficient in the SEC. Um, so, again, to, to have those pass numbers broken down like that is is particularly interesting. Seven, you said 17 and five of them were Carolina's fault, basically? Yeah, basically is how it, it graded out. And then I've also got the quarterback, to your point, the quarterback pressure numbers. Um, first of all, Ryan Holinsky overall in this game was just absolutely dominant. Um, his adjusted completion percentage for the entire game was 89% which takes um, batted passes and drops out of the equation. Um, and so when you take batted passes and drops um, away, he completed 89% of his passes. Um, he completed five of six passes while under pressure for 48 yards and four first downs. You turn that on Jake Fromm, and Jake Fromm completed two of 10 passes while under pressure with an interception, three sacks, um, two throwaways, and one hit is thrown for an NFL passer rating of zero. Wow. So uh, Carolina fans are hoping that that knee's okay because that bodes well for the future if that's the guy that's running your offense. I mean, it really is amazing how different they look. And this isn't a knock on Joyner. This isn't a knock on Bentley. This is more than anything just credit to Helensky for being able to come in and be so composed in the face of pressure when he has time, just basically in every situation, given that he's only started five games. It's phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with the way he's thrown the ball against the blitz really the last two weeks. Um, as a freshman, that can do so much. You start getting on film that, um, you know, you play well against, uh, against pressure. Uh, defense is starting to back off a little bit, gives the running game a little bit more room. It just really can, um, you know, change how the entire defense plays you based on how you can throw the ball when you're pressured. 
So that's most of the numbers, most of the position groups. Um, obviously, four turnovers was a huge story in this game. I, we've talked about them, I guess, in a roundabout way, just in terms of the individual players and their turnovers and the people that forced them. Uh, but was there anything else in terms of the numbers or, again, something that you saw on the sideline having that, you know, kind of like personal advantage on what happened, what unfolded on Saturday that tells the story of this 20-17 to 17 upset? So one of my favorite things to look at um, and it's been more difficult to find since Bill Connolly moved over to ESPN. But he has um, a metric called S&P Plus, which looks at all of the advanced numbers in games and then gives a real winning percentage or expected winning percentage and then kind of filters out garbage time and, and figures out you know, how much of it was luck, how much of it was skill. Um, and what I found that was interesting um, in that it's got five factors, and you know, we can talk about that you know, later at some point. I'll probably bring it up. But he tweeted out the um, stats from the South Carolina game. Um, South Carolina was given only an 8% chance of winning based on um, the advanced numbers. But where it really shows is um, you can't predict turnovers very well. Um, but even, the, even there, based on their pressure rates and their bat, uh, batted passes and the amount of forced fumbles they had, um, they were still expected to create 2.5 turnovers. So they ended up creating four um, so a little bit of turnover luck there based on, you know, I, I think as we saw the dropped interception again, kind of lucky. Um, but they did the best job of really any team against the top five team this year of limiting explosive plays. Um, South Carolina themselves were not that great at creating the big play, um, but Georgia was absolutely horrible. Um, and so their average was well below um, national average and their points per scoring opportunity, which takes into account field position, the amount of times you cross midfield, things like that, um, was two points per scoring opportunity lower than the, than the national average, which a little bit of that has to do with um, a little bit of luck, but a lot of that is timely defense, getting pressure when um, Georgia is marching almost into field goal range, forcing some long field goals. Um, things like that, and then also field position where they created turnovers. And South Carolina just did a really good job of um, really tightening, uh, tightening up when they needed to when Georgia crossed midfield. Um, and they crossed midfield seven times and scored 17 points, which is just um, really a testament to how well South Carolina's defense played. Yeah, three of those four turnovers that Carolina forced to were when Georgia was on the plus side of the field, um, if you include overtime, which obviously you should, but obviously they can't not be on the plus side of the field because you started the 25. So uh, regardless, just just a crazy game, man. I, I woke up Sunday morning, and I, I wasn't entirely sure that that had happened until I got on Twitter and everyone was still celebrating, and that's when I knew that it was real. But, uh, oh, man, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool that you got to be there. I wish I had wish I had braved a trip to Athens for that, but I was so sure that Carolina was going to lose it. But, um, you know, obviously very happy to, to be wrong and, and uh, very interested to see how the numbers break down. Not, I, actually very different than what I expected, to be honest. Yeah, and I think that happens when you have some games like this. I think it happens when you don't have opponent adjustments in there. Um, but also I think a lot of things have to go right for you to win a, against a high-quality team on the road, especially a team like Georgia um, that hasn't lost in the Sanford Stadium in a few years. Just wild. Just wild. Um, all right. I've, uh, we've gone a little bit long here just because there's, uh, there was so much to talk about because it was such an interesting game. So uh, I'll let you get back to it. I know you're super busy. Uh, check out Wilhelm's website, prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com. Follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Read him on Gamecock Central. Um, back to the grind this week for, uh, for all of us and, and for Carolina. Certainly got a stiff test at home against Florida, and we'll be back next Monday to hopefully talk about South Carolina upsetting another top uh, are they still top 10, or did they fall out of the top 10 with their loss to LSU? 
Um, I think they fell out of the top ten. Um, other than so, I'm not quite sure. Um, but you know, it would be a, another high quality win if they were able to do it. So, yeah, another top fifteen, top twenty uh, win. So, yeah, hopefully we're talking about that on Monday. Great stuff as always. Will, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. No problem. Sounds good. All right, thanks as always to Will. Follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Check out his website, prep-ra.com. Can't wait to talk to him next week. A lot of excitement for this Florida game now, but we'll have plenty more time to talk about that later on in the week on another Carolina podcast, which Wes, Chris, and I will do on Wednesday. And then, of course, my Friday Get Cocky podcast. But before we get out of here today, call it a Monday, going to get to the best of social media from this weekend, starting with Eddie at Gamecock S-E-C-E. Um, I wanted to bring this up because I need y'all's help. I told Eddie that we would workshop this and figured y'all could help me. He said, at Pearson Fowler, one last thing. Can we start calling it a Javon Quake when he bulldozes offensive line, or should we just call him Bulldozer? I said not Bulldozer because that's generic, nothing specific to Javon there. But Javon Quake also didn't really work for me. I couldn't think of anything better immediately, but that's why I started with this to give you all more time to think about it. We need to come up with some kind of nickname for when Javon does something like that. So thanks, Eddie, for the suggestion. And we will workshop that on Twitter and in the message boards. Uh, Todd Yellis at the big E-A-G-S-Y, Eegsy, the big Eegsy, I guess, uh, has a great picture. Obviously, the memes have been making the rounds. The Professor Muschamp, since Will put on the glasses, is uh, 2-0. Kentucky and the big upset against Georgia tweets an up-close picture of Will Muschamp's glasses. All caps, we are coming for you, UF. Hashtag fear the frames. That's really why I wanted to highlight this one from Todd Yellis. I think we need to do our best to get the hashtag fear the frames trending because that's a really good one. Uh, Elsewhere in college football, Dabo Sweeney was seen on the sideline berating his kicker, B.T. Potter, after missing a chip shot field goal in their runaway win over Florida State. At this point, Clemson was up 28-0. to Somebody tweeted a video of the scene, which Elliot Fry grabbed and retweeted with the caption, Elliot Fry, the all-time points leader of South Carolina, and tweeted, really bold move to try and ruin your young kicker's confidence in a cupcake game, dot, 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 really funny. Again, anything at Clemson's expense will usually make it on my best of social media for the weekend. One more fun jab. This is from uh, a David Hale joint. This is the official David Hale Twitter account. says, a Clemson student just kicked a 25-yard field goal for $1,000. I guess, you know, kind of like to have the punt, pass, and kick. It was one of those events going on during a commercial at a game. A Clemson student just kicked a 25-yard field goal for $1,000. Just thought folks at UGA would want to know about that. Fantastic. That's how you gloat. Well done. I feel a little bit bad for uh, for Rodrigo Blankenship just because I feel bad for kickers in general, and obviously he's fantastic, and that was his first true miss of the year. Obviously missed a little bit earlier, but it was blocked, but that's the first one that he's just straight up missed, and from 42, but obviously if you're a Carolina fan or if you're someone that uh, just roots for chaos in college football, then that was spectacular. Uh, that's a really good tweet. Uh, lastly, our best, very best of the weekend. This is a little bit more sentimental, but also really cool and I think noteworthy. This was a tweet from William Howell and I think a couple of people t- uh, pointed this out as well. So sorry if I don't have the originator, but the first person I saw it was at WHowell underscore two. Obviously, three is a is a powerful number in a lot of cultures and for South Carolina in particular with Ryan Holinsky obviously wearing number three in honor of his brother. But there were a lot of other threes that were involved in South Carolina's upset win on Saturday. So here's what the tweet says. Ryan Holinsky, number three. Ryan's brother, number three. Three interceptions, three sacks, beat the number three team by three with the third string quarterback and now Carolina is 3-3, three and three. hashtag hope doesn't sink. Uh, when I mentioned this to Eric Kimry after the game, he said, don't forget, South Carolina had a chance to win the game 
in the first overtime on Parker White's foot, which would have been a 33-yard field goal make. So I can only imagine, I mean, just one more layer of that. That's uh, fantastic. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Y'all can do with it what you will. I just think uh, I thought that was really cool. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll be back with Wes and Chris on Wednesday and then back here on the Get Cocky podcast on Friday. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast with your friends. It's a great way to support the pod. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you later this week. I wanted a career in which everything would matter. Because I'm motivated by something bigger than myself. So I joined the CIA. And now I help protect our families, our friends, and every fellow American. Here, my abilities contribute to our mission. Agency professionals have extraordinary integrity and exceptional talents. And every day, we do work that's incredibly important. Find out how everything you do in your career can impact our nation. Visit cia.gov careers to learn more and apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.